Welcome to Shaping Healthcare, a podcast by Sidious Tech. Some of the great minds in the world are constantly striving to solve the healthcare industry's greatest challenges with technology, creativity, and agility. With every episode of the Shaping Healthcare podcast, we will take you deeper into the world of healthcare and life sciences and give you a perspective into what it takes to build a human-first, technologically-enabled healthcare world. I'm your host, Laurel Rockle. Joining us today is John Squale, SVP, Head of Provider and Healthcare Services at Sidious Tech. John is a man with a clear vision and personal goal, which is to ensure that we all have access to quality care. Over the course of his career, he has held leadership responsibilities and consultant roles in a wide range of healthcare domains. At Sidious Tech, he helps clients develop data-driven healthcare solutions for providers, enabling advanced healthcare models to improve patient engagement and create an integrated and connected care circle for optimal support. How does healthcare transform and evolve into business models that work for the modern era without compromising on patient care? Can we improve the business and clinical side of healthcare hand in hand and get the maximum impact for investment as we integrate the newest emergent technologies? These are questions that we have, and hopefully John can help us understand them better. So, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to have you on. And I first want to say I appreciate that coming right out of the gates when someone goes to get to know you and learn about your career, the first thing is your personal mission, which, again, is to ensure that we all receive quality care. And so with regards to that personal mission, how far do you think we are from that in the United States? No, I'm glad you asked that, Laurel. I think there's a couple of ways to measure the gap analysis from where we are to where we need to be. I've heard this phrase that the future of healthcare is here. It's just not distributed equally. And I think that is true. There are some of us that get fantastic access to care when we need it in the right manner. And it's actually accessible to us from an affordability perspective. It doesn't necessarily cause a significant financial burden. There's others that simply either can't access it geographically, their life issues are getting in the way of them consistently making their appointments or taking their medications, et cetera. So while it may be accessible, there's other barriers for them to actually achieve good outcomes. But ultimately, the way I think that we're measuring it aggregately is by how much of our resources in the US are being consumed relative to our gross domestic products. And if we look at it that way, we actually spend the highest in the world on healthcare relative to our gross domestic product. It's almost 20%. Contrast that to Western Europe, which we could say has an equal or standard of living to the US or very, very equal. And they're spending about 3% less of their GDP. And there's some apples to oranges challenges there. But at the end of the day, we are always leading that. Now, the question is, for the same amount of spend, are we getting the same amount of outcome uh, benefits from a health perspective and a life longevity perspective, and also getting as much of our population access to care? And the answer is no. So you could use that 3% spread as a distance. But in fact, I think it's more than that because we actually have fewer people participating in the higher levels of good quality care than some of the Western European countries, and they're doing it for 3% less money. So there's some work to do. <laughs> there's some next steps to take. And well, I guess then also with regards to your personal mission and what you just said there, 
why was joining Insidious Tech, why did that feel like the next best step for you in trying to pursue that mission? So there's been a progression of influence that I would say has been important to me and been influenced by a lot of mentors and colleagues on how I can help to address that North Star vision. When we think about it, you can start as a medical professional, you can start in technology, there's all different types of disciplines you can do. But what really matters is the platform on which you exercise those and the reach and the influence that you can actually basically take control of or actually influence. So what does that mean? That means that organizations that are the size and scale of a health system can really only influence their community that they operate in. And oftentimes, they're only helping to influence the one side of the economic equation. In other words, a healthcare delivery system is doing the best to deliver the best healthcare they can, but they're still subject to things like prior authorization to insurance companies and also uh, denials of insurance companies. So they can't do everything that they feel that they want to do. Conversely, insurance companies have a significant amount of control. What I think it was needed is a middle ground. There's this area of operation where we can influence both parties on both sides of the economic barrier there between the payers and the consumers and the providers and really try to strike the right balance so that we can start to mitigate that consumption of gross domestic product like we talked about and start to restrain it and control it, but still increasing the outcomes. That really happens in the consulting arena where we can help to influence the strategy. We can help to influence the business plan, the people process, and most importantly, the tech. The tech is what is getting us automation. It's getting us more efficiency. And really, healthcare is one of the most labor-intensive industries that there is, and it is absolutely ready for automation, analytics, best insights, next best actions, and a lot of the technology to help to really, really drive the next layer of improved outcomes at a lower cost. Certainly, yeah, healthcare is one of those areas that never stops and we always need it. So I suppose in that field then that is go, 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 nonstop. When we're looking at healthcare technology like research and just digital transformation in an area like healthcare, when we look at competition, do you think competition has a negative effect or maybe what's the macro effect I should ask? You know, what's the effect of like the competition on the medical business? Yeah. So when we think of competition, there's the traditional operators, which primarily is the hospital down the street. And maybe it's a hospital system that's buying some of the competitors that are now, and they're starting to essentially operate within your community, or it might be the actual payers, which you can think of as a competitor in many ways, because they really are controlling the allocation of dollars. In many cases, the CMS, which is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they're the biggest payer in the United States. And they have now made the decision that they won't do certain procedures in the hospitals, that it must be done in ambulatory surgery centers. So you look at them and say, hey, they've taken a significant portion of our business if you're from a hospital perspective. And so there's many different types of traditional types of competitors. You look at urgent care now taking a significant amount of work away from typical family practices and internal medicine. But then you look at the new entrants. You look at Amazon having their new telehealth-first approach, also purchasing one medical. You look at Walmart Health. In fact, if we have to ask many people, what's the largest employer of physicians in the United States? I think that many would be hard-pressed to answer that question. It's actually an insurance company. 
It's United Health Group's Optum. They have 90,000 doctors, far more than their nearest biggest competitor. So in fact, it is just a completely dynamic market. And there really, really is no such thing as a pure payer and a pure provider anymore. It's much more gray. And when we think of competitors, we typically are thinking more at the community level or our direct competitors within a city or a region. And the reason for that is because patients will only drive so far to get healthcare unless it's something exceptionally catastrophic. And with regards to what that competition has, the effect that it has on the patient, I mean, would you say that competition is beneficial for the patient? Yeah. So look, there's two parts of this. There's always pros and cons to competition. The con to start off with is it's really, really confusing. If you go down the freeway, you might see three hospitals all saying they have the premier cardiac center. And you're like, well, which one is which? And how do I judge quality? Someone says someone's a good doctor. Well, does that mean that they're just friendly or that they actually can help cure you or treat you? So there's a lot of confusion on the empirical types of measurements that we can do to see if someone's truly performing to good evidence-based medicine, if they truly are award-winning on the way they're approaching a certain type of chronic disease or procedure. So that's really confusing. And then the second part is pricing. It's the weirdest thing in the world when the doctor says you need to have this procedure done and you're like, okay, what does it cost? Like you would if you were buying a car or like you would if you were buying anything. And they're like, I don't know. And there's really no way to figure it out until we do it. That is a really strange thing. So from a competitor perspective, the organizations that can cross that bridge and give a much, much better idea, empirically data-driven based, that they actually are delivering quality care and that they actually can give you a narrowed down price, I think that that is going to be significant to turning consumer sentiment and driving loyalty and net new patient capture. I'm glad that you brought up price transparency because that was something I wanted to ask about a few things I wanted to ask about. So for me as a patient and on the other side of this, I would say, you know, maybe it's not too difficult to imagine that more transparent pricing in healthcare, beneficial for patients, you know, to know how much things cost and budget for it or plan for it, all these things as best as one can. But how do you sell that idea to organizations? Yeah, there's some that are just obvious, like no brainers, shoppable procedures we talk about. Those are ones that are non-emergent. Those are ones that you're like, hey, it's kind of a commodity. In other words, if you're ordered to get an MRI, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone's got a better MRI than somebody else or that one's more painful than in other words. I mean, of course, there's open MRIs and then the small tunnels, but everyone's got one or two of the others. So that's something that we call shoppable. In other words, you've got enough time to do a little bit more informed decision and also try to get the pricing. And guess what? The pricing on that ought to be really easy to calculate for most providers because it's a very, very clean, simple procedure that's well-known and very little variation. And so surprisingly, many different providers simply do not have a single price on that. The pricing, even on something that simple, what we call in the shoppable category, is still highly variable on who's actually going to be paying the bill, which just seems silly to most people. And it frankly is. That is starting to become a little bit less nebulous now because there have been government regulations that are requiring organizations to publish the pricing. And as that happens, and as that pricing information is more accessible, then organizations are simply using that as a baseline to underprice each other on some of those shoppable procedures. 
Then contrast that to what those emergent situations or those situations that are catastrophic that you want to have the best doctor. And in fact, you might make an irrational decision financially to make sure that you've got the absolute best doctor or best healthcare system. What would that be like? Well, that would be like maybe choosing a doctor or a hospital that's not even in network list with your insurance company. We see this very commonly with organizations with people that may have an insurance plan that that's maybe not the best, and it may not give access to one of the premier children's hospitals. Well, they still want to bring their child to the best place of care to get that level of access for something critical. So oftentimes they're suffering from a severe financial burden and they only find out later after they actually get the bill. So there's this huge variation between the things that you can control and the things that you can't. The really desirable place to be is to have total price transparency over the shoppables and at least some type of price release, which is what we're getting now, that will drive price competition between hospitals down to a lower level. In other words, what it'll do is it might be hard to calculate like something that's non-shoppable, but at least the hospitals that have very, very high deviation on some kind of procedure are not going to feel exposed by having those prices published and they're going to adjust down. And we're starting to see some of that behavior adjusting those really egregious prices down. So we're starting to see a little bit more approach to the mean. And we think that that as this pricing transparency becomes prevalent, that that's going to take a lot more effect as far as trying to smooth out the pricing variation. Yeah. Do you think that would also help patients better understand the value, like the true value of the treatments better? Or like would there be a maybe some implications on even the quality of the healthcare with that pricing? That's a really interesting question. I don't really have a direct opinion. What I can tell you that that patients are typically very aware of is their out-of-pocket burden. So oftentimes the same procedure, I mean, let me give you an example, a, a CT scan, it may be billed if it's good quality commercial insurance at maybe $5,000. All the patient seems to really care about is that they're out of pocket, maybe $50 or $100 or something like that, just what it's going to cost them. The rest of it is all kind of funny money from their perspective, particularly if it's an employer paid plan, which they're not going to really experience any type of, of rate increase at all. If they're a high utilizer, Actually, no one really will since Obamacare. So what really it matters is what's my out-of-pocket. Now, for people that don't have insurance or are going out of network, other factors come into play. And that's what they also want to know is, am I going to get some other bill that goes far beyond just what I expected to pay out-of-pocket for another procedure? And those types of unanticipated bills, what we call them balance bills or out-of-network providers or out-of-network facilities. Those are the ones that can really, really be problematic. And those are the ones that we do need to be able to disclose to people that they're at risk of getting this before they actually go ahead and take that procedure from that particular provider. And so those triggers need to be worked on. And we have now the foundation of data, finally, in the public domain to be able to start to create that. The next leap is that hospitals and insurance companies actually have to create user-friendly applications so that people can actually do that shopping. And that's starting to mature and starting to, to drive uh, to basically get some adoption in certain cases. We've talked about the competitive marketplace and equity in healthcare. And so what are regulations, regulatory bodies, what are they doing now to encourage this equity in the industry? And is equity cognitively dissonant with the reality of a competitive marketplace? Yeah. So equity, obviously, 
has many different definitions, right? So the idea here is, can everybody access healthcare and is it a human right or it, should it be basically just go to who can build out to who can actually afford it? And so there's that a piece of equity. And if we believe it to be true for a moment that it actually is a part of, of living, it's in everybody's best interest to make sure that everybody is getting good at healthcare, then we can say, okay, so that's the bar of access. But then as we said before, is it just basic access or access to lower level of quality of care or is it high level quality of care? Well, it actually, I think competition, if is done correctly and actually kept empirically driven, and actually if there's some kind of a consumer protection to where they have to provide evidence of what they're claiming, then yes, I do think it's going to be beneficial. But that last piece has been the thing that's been really missing because there's really not a good database of clear empirical evidence for quality outcomes. We have things like hospital compare which does compare a certain amount of uh, factors that include utilization of different procedures, et cetera. But it, it doesn't really say this hospital got this many more diabetic patients healthy than this other one. It really doesn't say that. And so the question is, is where do I go? And you go right back to people using Yelp or saying this doctor's got a good bedside manner or this doctor, or even if you've got to call five urologists, which one actually got me in sooner? Well, that's a buyer value to say, I got an appointment sooner. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that doctor is going to give you a better outcome than another doctor. In fact, it might be the reverse. The doctor that actually may be hardest to get into from a time perspective may actually be the best. And that may be why they're in such demand. So there's this competition. If we can keep them honest about the quality measures and pricing, then I do think it will help the consumer in the long run. Absolutely. So I've heard before, like, the industry getting described as financially challenged. So therefore, value for investment is a critical piece there. And so, John, how would you recommend health practices that they choose their partners as they try to introduce med tech tools into their operations? Certainly, yeah. So there's a couple key components of any technology stack that really aren't driven by the personal choice of the physician anymore to a large extent. Why is that? Well, the EMR has become almost an absolute commodity. If number one, it's a must-have because of the government meaningful use requirements and promoting interoperability and all the other components that go into actually receiving some of the bonuses that you get every year. It's kind of table stakes that you have to have an EMR. The EMR industry has really coalesced down to a couple EMRs where there used to be a lot of competition. Now there's a massive amount of consolidation. And I think many of us know those logos out there, obviously, Epic, Meditech, Cerner, Allscripts, NextGen, Athena. I'm leaving out many, and I don't mean to leave them out. But at the end of the day, it really, really is a smaller industry now. And you're going to pick one. And oftentimes, it's chosen for you as a provider, because if you're participating in a large health system, oftentimes that health system is going to know, like say, oh, no, we use this EMR, get on board, and this is part of our policy. So that part of the tech uh, stack has oftentimes been removed from the choice. And that means that it's simply just Part of your practice is going to go to paying for that level of investment. But then there's a selection of, okay, what additional things can I bring in that are going to make me more efficient, that are going to provide a better experience for my patients, and they're going to give me a differentiation out there so that my practice gets chosen more frequently than my next competitor, or that my care model that I'm driving with my patients is actually going to help them achieve the best clinical outcome. 
And of course, with value-based care, that is a desirable, and it gives a desirable return back to the doctor financially as well. So that entire adherence, outreach, a consumer journey component of digital is great. Getting new patients in, interesting them in your particular practice with your particular specialized procedures, that is great. And those are the kinds of things that we really need to focus on. So oftentimes we call that digital, we call that mobile, we call that web, and that's done with different types of platforms. So there's that entire section where the smart doctors and the smart health systems are making the investments. Why? Because they go directly to growth and they go directly to efficiency. And of course, we know that as more and more of your patient base retires and goes on Medicare, that's a capped reimbursement fee. Primarily, there's a little bit of variation, but very little. Medicaid is the same. So you have to go out and try to get the larger cases, more complex cases, particularly with commercial types of insurance that are going to give you a better reimbursement. And the only way to do that really is to make sure that you're at the vanguard of the digital movement so that patients can discover you as the health system, discover you as the practice, get in as in through your digital front door, and then you can start doing those wonderful parts of your care model in a digitally enabled way. And that's going to keep that loyalty. And that's where we see most of the smart health systems and doctors really making their big bet. Yeah. And for a lot of industries, it seems like the idea behind digital transformation or successful digital transformation is cohesion. Less is, is more. And rather than a giant tech stack, integrating an AI platform across all departments that's already tuned into the pre-existing processes of the company and how that's very, seems to be the smoothest way to enact an effective and efficient change. And so is there cross-functional cooperation in medical organizations to enact that change? Or do you see that as a problem? Well, yeah, every health system is starting from a different point. And so some have a really, really good organizational kind of top-down control and integration. One of the key indicators that you typically see of an organization like that is they might have a lot of more employed physicians than affiliated physicians by contract. In other words, they've already integrated extensively, and you do see quite a bit more cohesion across the entire revenue cycle from front to mid to back and across the service lines. Then there's other health systems that from the outside might look, you can't tell the difference, but in fact, they might have a very, very different operating model, such as highly contracted with their affiliated positions, which that means much, much less control in that decision-making and much more having to do diplomacy to get all the positions lined up to do a big change. And even across the multiple service lines, you might have contention and completely different ways of working. And so there's a different starting point and maturity level for different organizations. One thing that helps to really optimize or accelerate, first of all, how they might take advantage of AI and analytics, and then also optimize the investment is by doing a platform technology. What does that mean? Those are things that are already well-established platforms that we can go in that have modules designed for most of the different specific components, whether it's the front-end rev cycle or mid-rev cycle with patient filling or back-end rev cycle with coding and, and all of those different types of aspects. And then, of course, the different service lines. That means we can start with the parts of the organization that are most ready and most willing to start, but that there's parts of that entire suite that can be rolled out as we can drive that cohesion and that integration. 
that's the best way. If we go and we just do little little point solutions for each department, we'll really never get to that point of integration and efficiency. Yeah. And with regards to price transparency, which we were talking about a little bit earlier, what do you think are the consumers most concerned with in terms of pricing, in your experience at least? And do you feel like healthcare organizations are doing enough about those concerns, engaging with those? Yeah. So the biggest pain point that I hear most often is basically what we call balance bills, or these are out-of-network bills. This surprise billing, you'll hear about the surprise billing regulations. What this really means is that when you most frequently see it, you might be going in for surgery and you might meet the anesthesiologist two minutes before you're actually going to go under. And you just assume you might've already done your checks. You've heard from your doctor that the hospital takes your insurance and that your surgeon takes your insurance. And all of a sudden, it could be a month and a half, two months after the surgery, you get this bill. It might be from an anesthesiologist and it might be astronomical. It might be a $2,000 bill. And we find out that that anesthesiologist was there that day, didn't take your insurance. Well, at the end of the day, all of us as consumers sign a form to say, we will take responsibility. And that's part of the stack of forms that you typically sign when you go in. That means that really no one is in your corner watching out for those outlier uh, facilities or physicians or labs that may be required to take a particular specimen and analyze that. And that means that you as a consumer are responsible. So what we very frequently hear is, is there any way that I can be protected from that kind of a situation, particularly when everything within my control to try to mitigate that risk? There is, right? So there's now really this No Surprises Act by Congress. And those bills that were balanced bills, it's driving that into an arbitration process to where doctors can still get paid and they'll probably will get paid a little bit more than the lowest contractual rate, but they're not going to make a windfall. They're going to get paid just a reasonable amount of money. And then that the out-of-pocket for that patient is going to be significantly less. It's not going to be these windfall bills of thousands of dollars for something that the patient was. So that's that. Of course, we'd all love to know what a procedure costs going in, but it's really not there yet at the level of fidelity we would like, but at least these surprise bills are significantly mitigated now by the price transparency rules. Wow. Yeah, that is hugely helpful. And that's fantastic. And when did that that act get passed? I think it was 2019, but it really got implemented in 2022. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I was like, wow, that's quite a big help (laughs) for the consumer. So thank you. Sean, it's been really great getting your expertise on this topic. And so to wrap things up, looking at kind of the here and now and then to the future, where do you think maybe perhaps more realistically hope, where do you realistically hope we will be in the United States in terms of equitable access to healthcare in that 10-year span? There's a couple different challenges here. Equitable access to any healthcare, I think that we will move there as the current baby boomers start to move on and Gen X becomes the new retirees. That's going to start to happen in the next 10 years, call it 12. I think the Gen X are going to be much, much more open to using telehealth, and that will immediately expand the access to care. Why? When we think of telehealth, we think of seeing a doctor over video, but in fact, that doesn't really help the access problem at all because you still have to have a doctor in real time and a synchronous time on the other side. When we talk about telehealth as a way to really be a force enabler, to give more broader access with the same amount of people, 
we're talking about asynchronous communication. Can I use a high clinical efficacy chatbot to get most of my questions answered and possibly even get a quick message to a doctor that all she has to do is say, yeah, validate and get that prescription over to me instead of going through all of the process of a typical office visit. She might be able to scale from one person to maybe a factor of 50 if we got simple parts of our medical care model oriented to that and we could rely on that level of efficiency. I think that the access to care is going to expand exponentially because of time constraint and geography no longer becomes an issue. So I think that that is really going to drive a huge amount of access. Now, for surgical and catastrophic procedures, how can we scale that? I think that the jury's still out there. For aging in home, how can we scale? I think that that is really a clear case. Robotics in the home are really going to change us. Not super expensive robotics, but simpler robotics to do basically activities of daily living. That will help to avoid people having to necessarily come to your home on a daily basis as you age in place. And I think that that's another major opportunity to scale access to care. So it may not be absolute direct clinical care, but it will definitely be part of the entire user journey of treating yourself and staying healthy, keeping you out of the hospital, keeping you from falling, keeping you from out of that inpatient stay. So this entire paradigm of whole person care, I think is going to be enabled by robotics, decision support, and AI. So interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what that does look like in 10 years. So speaking to the here and now, to close it out, John, what advice would you offer to someone looking to make better health choices and using and leveraging technology for their improved well-being? Obviously, I'm not a clinician, but I can tell you about a personal experience. I got an aura ring, which is one of those rings that goes over your finger and it can tell your calorie count and your steps and your SpO2 and sleep patterns. And I didn't really care about any of it, except I did love the fact that it was telling me how many calories I was burning in a day. And I was comparing that to the amount of elliptical calories that I was doing. And I could see that I was actually between my regular cycle, that that ring was estimating I was burning every day during my, in my metabolism, plus what I was doing in the elliptical was exceeding my calorie intake. And just that kind of a knowledge alone has enabled me to lose a significant amount of weight and keep it off. So it's amazing. And I don't like exercise and I was never really one to adopt many of these things, but the simplicity of that message of here's your metabolic cal caloric burn every day. And of course, I just added on what I was doing the elliptical because it showed that. And then I could compute with a little bit of a diet change to eat below that. And guess what? If you eat less than what you're burning... It's kind of simple math and it melts off and it stays off. So it was a really interesting way and it's been successful for a year and a half. So I'm sure there's people that are adopting at a higher level of fidelity, but for someone that's as challenging as me on that kind of stuff, it works. So these are the little types of, I think, of adoption of technology. And the other one is, of course, is the, the little nags. If you ask little pilots now that are happening with generative AI, uh, whether it's on your iPhone or whatever, these have these little assistants and you can kind of just invite a little bit of nagging on whatever it is, a little bit of a day, whatever you might tolerate. It'll even learn through your acknowledgement what days you might be more apt to accept its advice and what you won't. It's interesting. It's almost like it's another little conscious, but it's a smart conscious that can kind of adapt to what you do and kind of steer you down a good uh, the thing on habit or diet or whatever and exercise. And these types of things, I think, are going to bend the curve and bend the needle for some people. So, but we'll see. If it becomes ubiquitous. Yeah. Well, I would like to agree with you. I think some of those things are 
however small we might see it, you know, air quotes there, but they can make huge changes. And it sounds like you found that for yourself, that example for yourself of how little change, that little bit of information that you're getting made a great change in your life. And so that's fantastic. And well, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your expertise and your knowledge on this subject and sitting down with us today and talking about this. It's been really enlightening. So thank you so much. Thank you too, Laurel. Appreciate it. The Shaping Healthcare Podcast is brought to you by Sidious Tech, a leader in healthcare consulting and IT services. To find out more about Sidious Tech, visit SidiousTech.com. To listen to more interesting insights on healthcare technology and innovations, search and subscribe to the Shaping Healthcare Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want to share any feedback or would like to be featured in our podcast, do write to us at SidiousVision at SidiousTech.com. Thank you.